one of the hardest things to do is invest in yourself. Not just from the perspective of your time, but money you're willing to spend on your project or sacrifice to make the time to complete your projects. Tara Mila, who wrote and directed Wander Darkly, had to set aside a lot of opportunities and invest in creating the time for herself as a mother to actually write the script. And she did it when she didn't have a lot of money to spare. And I bring that up because the film went on to star Sienna Miller, Diego Luna, Tara directed it, it premiered at Sundance 2020, but it was just an idea that she had alone, like so many projects are. And Tara explains to us in detail how she fought against the doubt in her own mind and the risk she took on as a creative and a parent to see this thing through. And I think that's a really powerful note within this interview, along with a lot of things she can share about being a director, about being a female filmmaker, about how her career has straddled the time when it was nearly impossible for her to find her way into the director's chair to now when she actually has opportunities to tell her own stories and direct other popular stuff. But I think the thing that's most striking about Tara and Wander Darkly is that she felt that this story needed to be told and she could tell it. And she put her weight behind it for those reasons. And she fought the doubts in her mind and she fought some of the problems and obstacles that came her way because of that. I think it's a good lesson in what it takes to persevere, what kind of project you can invest yourself in and what kind of touchstones you need to get all the way through the finish line. So with that, Wander Darkly and Tara Mila. This project is uh, Wander Darkly, very unique. And I'm curious if it, as you know, writing, directing, if it comes from a personal place or where the initial inspiration for the for the story came from? Um, yeah, you know, there were a few things. Um, my husband and I did survive a, a, a head-on collision about seven years ago. and Oh, wow. Well, then yeah. it's very personal. <laughs> yeah, really personal. And, you know, the truth is, uh, afterwards, I was fairly concussed. Um, thank goodness for, you know, ambulances and, and airbags and all the things that, sure. you know, helped us be okay, ultimately. But um, I was pretty concussed. And I did have a moment that is in the, in the movie where... I was on the couch, could not get up and was calling to my six month old and she was ignoring me. And it just for a second, my confused brain was like, well, that's because you're dead <laughs> and you didn't make it and she's going to be raised by your parents and that's it. And I just felt so unromantic and so, you know, um, uh, tragic and finite and, uh, coming out of that experience, you know, a month later, my husband and I were at my parents for Thanksgiving and they were like fighting about the turkey and the kids are crying. And I just was so overwhelmed with gratitude to still be there and for our messy, delicate little lives that we were lucky enough to get to live and really wanted to share that feeling. Um, so there, that was sort of this impetus for me of Wander Darkly. 
how long was it from that moment, that experience until the script started becoming a script? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I had to actually go back and like look at my documents in my computer to try to figure it out because I was like, how, like, when did I first have that idea? You know? So, um, I think I had the very kernel of the idea probably six months after the accident and then, um, wrote a one page about it like four months after that. So I kicked it around a little bit, you know, just sort of was, was the one page sort of like for personal use, like, or yes. was it something where you were like, what if I was going to pitch this? Or like, I'm curious also for our listeners who are thinking mm-hmm. like, how do you, where, where does a, where does a project begin? I know for every writer it's different, yeah. but with something that ends up making its way all the way, <laughs> all the way through, Yeah. where did that, what was that one page? What was the structure or the mindset behind it? Yeah. So the one page, so what I like to do is I'll have like almost like a three sentence pitch. That's the entire movie, like maybe four, like really, really short. That is the whole movie. And that I can say out loud to somebody and that I can get like a gauge. Like I really love to see someone's like reaction. And in this one, I would like share it and people would physically gasp. And I was like, that's a good pitch. (laughs) Like that's working. So that's where you start pretty much always is something like that. With just like the, the kernel, because if the kernel doesn't work, if there's not something really powerful in the kernel, then I, I am not sure what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there has to be something in the kernel of it that's like an emotional, there's like the, the song itself has an emotional symphony to it. Sure. Um, so then with the one page, that's just really for me, honestly. Like I, I'll go through and I'll sort of like, it, it's almost like a, an accordion. Uh, and I work this way through my whole process. So like um, the one page is an expansion of those three or four sentences. And then the treatment is just an expansion of detail of that one page. And then the script is then an expansion of that 12 page. So um, I do try to stay pretty true to the core of the original idea. I feel like the projects that I've done where they've been more developed or I've worked with a producer who has like a big change on the original kernel of the idea never work. It's like you can just develop something out of what was so good about it in the first place. So are there any examples of that you're willing, you're comfortable sharing? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's an okay answer. Um, but that's it's just interesting to to note. So there are times when you know the kernel things just veer in the other direction from where. Yeah, sometimes um, I think maybe even the producer is right that the original kernel can't work for some moral reason or some other reason, and sure but then there's never a replacement for the kernel, right? Like it's like you never get back to whatever was like the three note structure that really worked, you know, of whatever it was going to be. Um, And then sometimes that's the job, right? As a writer, if you're not writing on spec, if you're writing as a gun for hire, you're, you know, you're, you're getting paid sometimes to, to do what's, what's asked of you. So this wasn't that experience. This was definitely a, producers pushing me to go deeper into my, my own wants and needs and, and trying to, to enable me to make the best version of my story, which was. Yeah. So I guess I, I kind of want to go a little farther back in time now, Mm -hmm. even before this project kind of came into your life. Where, uh, where did you begin your career? How did you really get started? And you mentioned being a writer for hire, which you've done, you've been a director for hire on television, um, so what was sort of the beginning of your career? How did you start out? 
Yeah. So um, I was a theater student at uh, UC Santa Barbara and uh, feeling quite lost and not kind of sure what I was doing with my life. I had directed a one act play, but it didn't feel like quite like my home. And a friend dragged me to like student film screenings. And I was like, oh my God, people make movies. Like someone actually made that, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. it occurred to me for the first time. Um, I, it was like a light hit me and I was, um, I was found, you know? So I made yeah. a student film uh, that was like, you know, one of four that got made every year. And that, that film went to slam dance after graduation. And that was in 2000. So when I was at Sundance this year with Wonder Darkly, I kept saying, I premiered my student film 20 years ago up at the Treasure Mountain Inn, and it took me 20 years to get down the hill. Um, yeah. <laughs> that was really true. You know, um, after that, I, I was very sure that I was going to get a feature, you know, within the next couple of years out of film school. And that was the plan. And um, I think in retrospect now, I can say, you know, with less uh, fear of repercussion that being a young woman meant that I was not financeable. Um, and so I, I did a bunch of short films. I did like a spec commercial. I, I was, I started writing. I sold a bunch of rom-coms. Um, I still was, I remember sitting in a studio after I'd gotten into the guild and I'd sold, you know, like my first guild project and the way that, uh, just the way that the room felt, I was like, oh, I'm never going to get hired to direct this. Like that's never, ever going to happen. Um, and then the writer's strike hit, and that was really, really rough. I was pregnant. I was losing my benefits. Um, and I just felt like, oh, God, I have to contribute more to the world. Like, I came here to direct, not to, like, develop projects into oblivion. So I, I yeah. very dramatically broke up with my writing partner and my agent and my manager and everybody and was like, I'm going to join the Peace Corps. <laughs> and then that lasted, like, four days, and then I did some <laughs> I did some therapy and um, I got a letter from a friend of a friend forwarded to me. And it was like, I have $100,000, a house on Lake Michigan, a dog, a pickup truck, and I'm looking for a script and a director. And I was like, oh shit, I have to go make a movie. Like I have to do this. And I felt like if I didn't do it before my daughter came, I was never going to do it. Like it just was never going to happen. So you were pregnant at the time. So pregnant. Yeah. Um, and so I met with this producer and convinced her that we should, she wanted to shoot in August, but I was due in August. And I said, would you consider shooting it in June? And she was like, we don't even have a script. And I was like, but I've got this great idea and I could write it and it's going to be great. And she was like, are we? Did you have that idea before you got the email or did the idea? I had like, so I lied to her. I told her I had a treatment uh, and I did not have a treatment, but I did have an idea. (laughs) So (laughs) I I had an idea that sort of like nobody on my team was very interested in because it was too small. And uh, so I pitched her that idea and she really loved it. And then I sort of had to, it was interesting, right? Because it wasn't just like my idea. It felt very much like I was doing it within the sandbox that, that producer wanted to play in for the time and the space we had. So even though that's my script and I directed that and it's technically my first film, in some ways, Wander Darkly feels more like my first film. Um, that one felt like, you know, we shot it in 15 days. I wrote it in probably 15 days. Um, it felt like just something that had to happen. Um, but I'm awfully proud of that one too. You know, you're proud of all your babies. Um, so yeah. yeah, so we well, did So you that. were you were very pregnant. You were oh, coming so to pregnant. the end of term. Uh-huh. And you had some, I mean, can, just giving a little context here from what you just told me, you were pregnant, you left 
your writing partner and your representation yeah. considered the Peace Corps, dropped the idea of the Peace Corps, got an email about a possible project, <laughs> threw yourself into it, and were like, we have to shoot it before I have this child. So then you went on location and you shot this movie. Yeah. And then you had the baby. And then six months later, had a traumatic car crash. That's a rough that's a crazy year. Oh, so, so, right? so we missed. So you missed. So after I did that movie, definitely edited for a long time. Then I did three lifetime movies back to back off of that movie. So there was like a good chunk between those. Okay. Yeah. 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 So thank goodness. Those events. Okay. Yeah. So, but definitely like did these three lifetime movies. And it was like another right turn at the end of that experience that I felt like, um, you know, we were heavily in debt. <laughs> you don't get paid a lot to do those little micro budget, like, you know, co-pros, I was paying the nanny more than I was getting paid. I had two kids at that point. Um, and I, again, was like, that's it. I quit all of it. No more lifetime. Like, I came here to do something else that I feel like I can't do in this space. And um, I, like, I stopped working. I wrote Wander Darkly. I made a little viral video called Meet a Muslim. It was like another right turn. It was like, this isn't working. I have to do something totally different. If I'm like, I wrote my way out. I Hamiltoned my way out of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, so all of that happened between Lake Effect and Wander yes. Darkly. Yes, exactly. Okay. And then, and you know, directing television. Yeah. How did that become, like, how did you get your first, what got you in the door to direct yeah, television? So I mean, look, the truth is, is me too and Time's Up like saved my life. Um, before that, there just wasn't a doorway for me to that playing field. So I did this CBS program at the same time as doing the Lifetime movies and was not making, you know, actual like living wages there. Were um, you directing the Lifetime movies? Just to yes. clarify. Yeah. Okay. And I, I wrote one and I directed three. So two were written by other people. Um, but by the way, it was an incredible way to cut my teeth and to like get on set and to do the work. I was so grateful uh, for it. Being paid to direct, that's great. I mean, that's yeah, a huge achievement, huge. period. Especially yeah. when you say at one point earlier on, you were looking around and saying, there's no path for me. Yeah. And it was testament to the fact that there was one producer at the company that I was hired by that was like, I'm going to hire you. I'm going to hire women. I think I can make it happen. And she did. Even before Me Too. Before. Yeah. Right before. Yeah. Um, so coming into the Me Too moment, I sort of had these three you know, movies, which gave me kind of an edge, right? That I'd actually worked. Um, and I got into this, uh, the DGA on my last movie. And then being in the DGA allowed me to get into the CBS program. And I met, uh, Glenn Geller was the head of CBS at the time. And he was like, I love your reel. We had this lovely meeting. And he was like, you just need more action. Like go shadow on Hawaii Five O. And I thought like, that sounds like the most unlikely match. Like there's no way they're going <laughs> to hire me. You've got to be like, there's no way. Um, but I went out to Hawaii. You know, it's funny because you don't like get paid to go shadow. And I was so worried about money. And if I'm, if I'm off in Hawaii, that means my husband can't be shooting. He's a cinematographer. And that means like who's watching the kids. It just was, it's, it's not easy to jump through those hoops sometimes. Um, but it was a huge opportunity. And so I went and um, Brian Spicer, who was their producing director, was like lovely, took me under his wing. I paid lots of attention. I really respected that they were doing some big stuff I had never done. I learned a lot. And then they invited me to do an episode. And then um, that went really well. They invited me to do another episode right away. Um, and then I remember I was like in a hotel and casting Wander Darkly and like in Hawaii. And it was like it all like my feature career was sort of taking off at the exact same time 
that my TV career was taking off. And they were so different, right? Like independent film and broadcast television could yeah. not have been more different. So, um, but yeah, I felt very lucky to have this sort of incredible creative outlet of Wander Darkly, which was so mine um, while I was in other people's sandboxes. And, and, you know, as a broadcast journeyman director, you're like, um, like a blocking and camera manager, you know, and it's fun and there's, it's great to blow stuff up and I like shooting action, but it was really nice to be able to keep my, you know, keep my roots in Wander Darkly and know that that was sort of coming and have that creative, that creative thing happening for me too. And so, and coming to Wander Darkly where like you were in Hawaii, I always thought like, you know, shooting Hawaii five almost be a lot of fun because you get to be in Hawaii. <laughs> but like, so you're in Hawaii and you're yeah. shadowing or, mm-hmm. or were you shooting and wonder darkly, like, where did it, so you have this idea, you wrote the one page, you started writing the script. Yeah. When did you feel like you had traction to get a movie made? Like, what did you do with that yeah. piece of, of writing? So, um, you know, it's funny because I keep, I keep my writing pretty close to the cuff. Like I don't share it with a ton of people. Um, Lynette Hal Taylor, who uh, produced the movie, she was one of the first people I pitched it to. And I just, that little kernel and she went, oh my God, you have to write that. That's that, that's it. And I was like, right, I do. I'm like, I shouldn't worry about pitching it. I should just go spec it. And she really gave me like a little bit of, um, confidence to think that, yeah, she, I I knew it. I knew this in my gut. She's right. I can just go write this. Um, when I finished it, I immediately sent it to her. Actually, I sent it to maybe like five or six people, but she was, you know, one of those people and she really responded to it. And we had this phone call. Um, and it's funny enough. I actually remember it's such a mom moment, but I was at the park. My youngest was like potty training. I'm on the phone with Lynette and I'm so excited that she's responding to the film, but I can like barely hear her notes because my youngest is standing on the playground peeing on the children (laughs) below her. And, you know, it's crazy because I actually like, I know Lynette enough, easily enough to say, I have to go deal with this. But I was so excited that she was excited and I just didn't want to interrupt her excitement. And so I think I I was just like, oh my God, so great. It's so great. And I was like, listen, let me take you out to lunch so that we can like face to face about this. And because I was like watching her, my oldest is like, she's peeing on our heads. And I was like, oh my God. So that that's just a real like mom life moment. But um, yeah, no, I mean, I have young kids. I, I totally get it. And the, the, one of the hard things about it, even for those who don't or do, is that you can often be in a, in a moment professionally where you're like, there's no way, even if I tell them they can't fathom yeah, this, it's like just, trying to be, my brain is in two places at once in this, in this situation. And I just have to, you know, keep it to myself. That's right. I don't even think Lynette knows that story. Actually. I don't think she's ever heard that before. Freaking professional, you know, <laughs> like everyone's in a while. You just want to look like you have your shit together. So, um, but anyway, so uh, I sat down with her at lunch and she, you know, continued to talk about how she just deeply understood it and she really, really got it and really appreciated it. And I just said, I said, I know like at the time, lots of stuff was up in the air for her. And I said, I know you're too big and doing huge studio movies now, but you have to produce this for me. <laughs> and <laughs> we sort of was like, you know, let's develop it together and uh, we'll see, we'll see where the script gets. And if I can't do it, when we get it ready, I'll find you someone who will, which was glorious. And I said, absolutely. And that sounds, that sounds fantastic. And she, by the time we had it where we both were ready, she was like over my dead body as anybody else producing this movie. Like it was really ours. Um, 
and she brought in Where her is, partner and yeah. Yeah. So she has, uh, she's had a really successful run as a producer of indies and, and larger movies. Some of her credits, Stars Born, Blue Valentine, you know, she has a lot. Where was she in her career when she, cause, cause that was a get for you to have a producer of that, like her on board. Was she at a point where her being behind it was like, this is going to happen? Like for real in your oh, mind? Interesting. Or, you no. know, sometimes no producer can make Like how, how real did it feel at that moment? You know, it's so weird. I think no producer is a 100% guarantee on anything. I think this is in constant flux. And as a writer and, a you know, we're the ones who come on when there's nothing. Like when there's zero ever guarantee. I mean, it's such an act of deluding yourself to sit down at your desk every day and convince yourself that eventually this thing will be made and will be out there. Um, But that's just a testament to like a writer's creativity and their imagination that you can like get yourself to that point. I find it, I find it really fascinating actually. So no, I don't think it even felt real. Like on day one, I was like, is this actually happening? This is insane. Like, how is this actually happening? You know? Yeah. Certainly having one that was huge. It was a huge. Yeah. I want to follow up on something you just said though, about the act of deluding yourself as a writer, when you're writing something that's so personal. And I guess you had a little encouragement by putting it out there and getting some like reactions mm-hmm. where you're like, okay, I got something here, but how hard is it to show up every day at your desk? Or, or I know it's hard. How do you continue to show up every day at your desk, write a story that's deeply personal and fully believe that you're going to, you know, see this thing through that one day you yeah. might be able to make this movie. It's taken a really long time to like um, quiet the voices. I mean, there were times where I literally would be like, Uh, okay, everybody has to get out because I actually have to get this done. Like just, you know, all the critics, right? Like whoever you're imagining, the agent or Uh, the the fan that's going to sit in their basement and write mean things or, you know, whoever it is that is in your head that's telling you it's not good enough or it's never going to happen or what's the point or you're wasting your time. Um, And then again, just to speak uh, from the perspective of a parent, you know, often when I wrote this script in particular, I mean, I've mentioned that we were broke, right? But my husband had taken a job shooting a reality show in Macon, Georgia for five months um, because we didn't really have a choice. It was like the best option at the time. And I had these two little girls and uh, I think the the girls were like two and five at the time. And I was like, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to come out to Macon for five weeks and I'm going to write the script every morning. So I hired a nanny from eight to noon every morning. And so then I'm like paying for it, right? So then like not only are you yeah. like having to convince yourself that it's worth your time, but it's worth paying cash out to someone else to watch the kids and time away from your kids, right? Um, so that takes a lot of uh, bravery, I want to say, but confidence, like ability to, to, like you said, you could clear the room of, of the doubters in your head, but but that's like, that like piles more of them in. So I'm just, I'm impressed by the ability to do that. Oh, thanks. I mean, I, 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 I just want to be so honest about the fact that I struggle with it. You know, like I yeah. had to write a thing for a magazine the other day and I was so tortured about like feeling quantified by this thing and being, feeling exposed. And um, I, I just think when you're a writer, you have to delude yourself that there are no production problems, that there is no critic, that it's, that it, you know, you really have to get in the river and let the flow happen. And, Try to try to keep the critic voice for when you're doing the read throughs and the rewrites and the the second step of it. It's 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 a yeah. It's a weird. 
a weird thing. I feel like I could talk about it all day. Like I want to have like a writer's therapy group and just talk about this. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, I wish you could too. I mean, I wish we all could. Cause I think that for so many creatives that, uh, challenge is the is the key challenge. Like we can, we'll go on now and talk about you know you're on set and you have a class that includes Diego Luna and Sienna Miller who are like huge talents and names and you have you know you're eventually you're at Sundance so so much happens that's so big but to remember that you have to push that boulder up the mountain by yourself putting sending out cash to literally make time to do it and quiet your own self doubt is. I think so valuable to, to yeah. relate to other creatives, you know? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. But you know, I think the other thing is too, is like, I was at this point where because I had had this car accident, time felt really finite. And it was also like not too long. I think after this, it was like Donald Trump was running for president and it felt like there were no sane voices in the conversation. So it was like, all of a sudden I felt like I have something essential to say, and I have to say it right now. And it's really important. And um, I remember I, I interned for Jodie Foster my senior year of college and uh, for her company, Egg Pictures. And she used to say, like, what is the big, beautiful idea in this movie? And I think if there's not like a real thing that you're doing with a film it's, it, it's harder, right? Like, why am I doing this? Why am I coming to this every day? But if there's something yeah. sort of essential in what you're saying, then, then that's kind of your North star all the way along and, and hopefully helps, helps you through those lower moments that this does matter. So did you feel compelled by the message, the experience you were trying to convey? Like I can share this experience where suddenly I value the fragility of life or something yeah. to that yes. effect. Yeah. I was, I was just like, oh my God, we all take it so for granted. Um, it's so fragile. It's so finite. And even when we were like at Sundance, like, you know, you have this big premiere and it's sort of, we, we had like a mixed review and I was sort of uncomfortable. I felt really exposed and I was like not enjoying the experience. And then I came out of a Q and A and found out that Kobe Bryant, his daughter had died. And I was like, oh my God, like, you know, we are all in this same delicate boat of life and none of this matters. And that is why I made this film. It was like to remind myself to like appreciate what actually mattered, you know, like to hug my kids, to yeah. love my husband, to like connect to the people around me, to have real relationship. Um, so, so yeah, it's like, it was like something I needed as a constant reminder and I still need as a constant reminder. It's like, it's a lesson you have to keep learning. It's, it's hard to function and keep it in the forefront of your mind, yeah. right? Because yeah. you can't really treat every moment like it could be your last, but you constantly feel like you need to be reminded that you should. Right. <laughs> like it's, it's a really a hard balancing yeah, like, act as a living being. Yeah. It's like a smoke them if you got them. Like just enjoy it while you got it. That's really the truth <laughs> of it, right? It's like, it can't, you're right. It can't yeah. be that like precious and like heavy and, and all that all the time, but it could be joyful and appreciative and connective, right? Yeah. How, so I, I, yeah, I, I was at Sundance 2020. I remember 
also finding out, um, I think we just finished recording a podcast actually for no mm-hmm. film school. <laughs> and I remember afterwards someone pulled out their phone and was like, Oh my God, Kobe yeah. Bryant died. And it was like this stunning moment. And then everything, I think we've, I even went to an ESPN films event after surreal. It was just one of those little reminders from a marketing standpoint. And I know that's not up to you, mm-hmm. but isn't it hard with this film to get people in the door for that? Because I think what, what, what comes forth about the film is that, you know, you have the two stars, there's a relationship at its core. There's a question about the survival of a relationship, but, but the existential stuff isn't really possible to tease on that level. Do you wish you could, or are you glad (laughs) that that's something that, that more comes through the viewing and the experience? You know, it's such a double-edged sword. I think uh, Lionsgate did an incredible job with the trailer, which I think is really compelling and and makes you want to know more in all the right ways. It like it gives you hints of how much is coming for you know coming at you in this film. Um, but then I saw Diego was on Kimmel last night, and he was like, "I can't really say anything." <laughs> I was like, "We need some talking points," because like we had, he was like, "It's beautiful. You should see it." You know, and I was like, "Yes, that's true." <laughs> It's like we need to give everyone some talking points. Um, and like, here's the truth: I like if I could say, I really do hope people sit down to this movie, especially right now, because I think it's so cathartic, and I think it it's so much about the triumph of the human spirit. It's so much about um, the feeling of connectivity and resilience. And um, I, you know, people leave this movie and and they want to like call their partners and they want to like, you know, hug their mom or, or like find their dog and give it a, give it a pet. You know, I think it leaves people wanting to repair whatever has been sort of inadvertently broken in terms of the relationships in their lives. And that's, that's a really lovely thing to be doing right now, especially while we're all re-examining like our fundamental needs, our nuclear families, our love, you know, the way we love. I think that's that. It's a moment. It's a it's a really interesting time for it, for the reasons you say, and also because we are losing an astounding number of human beings every day, and I think as a society we're almost becoming numb to that number. Yeah, that is a human each time that's like lost from a life, from a family, and I think that the other thing it reminds me of is I recently had a friend who's um wife was diagnosed with a with a form of cancer they have kids they're young healthy people and everything he said and posted or shared has been sort of about like i am so struck by how fleeting the moments are and the film reminded me of it 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 was like you can't uh it's really hard to grasp and if you can share that if you have the experience or have had the experience where it comes into focus like that and you can share it it's really powerful Um, And that's sort of why I asked about the marketing, because how do you, you know, people go to movies for so many different reasons. And especially now, um, how do you get people to to understand like this kind of catharsis in the in the movie experience? Right. Like in a marketing sense. Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, Um, it is. It's definitely tricky. Um, And I hope, you know, the hard thing is, is I just hope audiences don't get sort of turned off by the feeling of like, it's not homework, this movie. You know, it's not right. Know, that too, yeah. Heaviness in it for sure, um, but all in service for the the lightness that comes at the end and the catharsis and the sort of love that comes at the end. Um, I think too, like 
it's sort of, I remember one person told me when they saw it early on, it was like, oh my God, I feel like I just went on vacation. Like <laughs> this movie, mm. it sort of takes you places. And I think while we're all yeah. at home, there's going to be something really nice for people to feel. There is quite a bit of escapism and um, you get to fall in love with this couple and, and share somebody else's journey. Um, I know for me right now, I have such a FOMO. I feel like everybody else is living normal lives and I'm the only one <laughs> that's like trapped at home. It's just a weird brain thing, I think, to, to feel right. isolated this way. It's, but there's something the nice about that. The desperate need to travel yeah. <laughs> through space yeah. and time is yeah. definitely an itch the movie scratches because you... I think it's always fun to kind of uh, in movies. And I, I guess one of the movies I think of with, with wonder darkly is eternal sunshine of the spotless sure. mind, which is an entirely different um, theme at its heart, but similar in that a relationship through space and time. Yeah. Um, there's a fun, oh, I'm not sure what the right word is, but there's a fun aspect of experiencing another couple and going through their steps because so many of our couplehoods share these certain landmarks just like our lives do and yeah. so you're experiencing it and it, it reminds you of your own you know it yeah. reminds you of the moment when and i think that that is also um it's fun it's a fun trip to take I, yeah. um, even if it has some heavy notes i think there's something comforting <clears throat> about feeling like oh you know most couples deal with this or other couples also deal with this and we're not alone i think you know adrian as a character is all about these shoulds what you're supposed to have when you're supposed to have it how it's all supposed to go um, and I think a lot of us live that way, that we think everybody else has it all figured out and we've got to catch up and we've got to make it happen. And um, we're all just messy, man. <laughs> it's like nobody, yeah. <laughs> nobody's got it all figured out. We're all we're all just stumbling blindly through the void. And like that's I find that really reassuring, actually. <laughs> you know, going back to the actually like the nuts and bolts of making the movie, like how long did it take from, you know, having producers sign on? And, and when, you know, when did production start from that point and how did you, and, you know, how, did you feel like Sundance was always the target yeah. or did that happen? And then, you know, can you take me through a little bit of just the, you know, the steps that, you know, you get a movie, the movie gets made and then what, you know, and then you get to Sundance and then what, you know? Yeah. So after Lynette came on, um, she was in a process of sort of building up her own company. And so she had brought on producer Samantha Houseman, who she, Sam was really my right hand every day, like day in and day out. So, but Lynette was sort of waiting to have that person on before we were ready to go. So that took a few months just while she was like getting that together. I was off shooting TV, <clears throat> probably making some like still developing the script a tiny bit. Um, and then, oh, and I created like a really solid lookbook. I think I have like a 28 page lookbook that was everything from casting to, you know, the way I thought LA should be shot to, I mean, really everything. It's like an exhaustive lookbook. Were you inspired to do that on your own or was that something you were encouraged to do by producers? Um, I was encouraged to do that by producers and it was certainly the first time I'd done it. And now I do it for everything. I mean, I wouldn't even do a TV show without it. It's such an incredible process. Um, and I know other directors hire it out to people, but it's so much a part of like my thinking about, oh, what other movies have done this and what did it look like? Because if you're trying to express something visually to a financier or an actor, and you might not even meet them, they might see the lookbook without even meeting you first. You have to sort of dig in and think, when else has this been done and how has it been done well so that I can show that I want to do it well. Um, 
So that process is really fun. Actually, it's, it takes a long time, but it's really cool and informative for me. So I did that. And then we started sending the script and the lookbook out to actors. Um, we The casting process took a minute. We did have an actress on and then our schedules weren't going to work. Um, but Diego came on in that period. And then uh, we were looking to recast the Adrian. Diego's agent uh, is Sienna's agent. So she had slipped it to Sienna. And then Sienna called Lynette, actually, and lobbied for herself for the project. And Wow. Um, yeah, That's exciting, right? For was, you as a writer-director to have someone huge. like that say, like, I really want this part. <laughs> yes, huge. And um, I loved how, first of all, I think Sienna is such a chameleon. She is like an ingenue, but with a character soul. She really transforms into roles. Um, I think people often don't even know that they're watching her. And yeah, you know what's interesting about her, I think? She is disappears a little bit mm -hmm. into the different parts. And you have to be reminded that she's done such a range of stuff. But this is yet another instance in her career where she sort of vanishes into a completely new character. And I think yeah, that she's, she's not given enough credit for her ability to do that. I agree. And I do hope between this and American Woman that she's sort of entering this new phase where we can stop all talking about how underappreciated she is and just appreciate her and award her and, and congratulate her outright. You know, she really has, I think she's just earned it with this. She worked so hard. Um, and it was not an easy thing to, you know, live in for, for the four or five weeks that we had. Um, so, but once Sienna came on, things moved very quickly. Um, I always thought I was going to have like this immense like period of soft prep and that just did not happen. Um, so we spent a lot of time crewing and scouting um, and moved really, really quickly from the time Sienna was on. We had a date that was like maybe nine weeks out. And so we, we started prep seven weeks out and then uh, our cinematographer, Car Carolina Costa wasn't available right away. So I had to start prep without her. Um, she came later and it was, it was a very, very involved prep just because of the number of transitions that we were trying to accomplish and the sort of interdepartmental collaboration that had to happen for for that to to work. You know, it was like doing builds out on La Cienega Boulevard so that Sienna could look like she was in the hospital and walk out into an alley. Um, I wanted to do as much as possible, as much as possible on camera. Yeah. And I did, we did get a week of rehearsal, uh, Sienna and Diego and I, and that was really, really wonderful. They have a relationship that they've known each other as friends for, you know, since E2 Mama Tambien and Factory Girl. So um, there was a real level of um, just deep familiarity and comfort. You know, that feeling when you've known someone since you were babies in the business, like there's just yeah. a feeling of like, oh, thank goodness it's you. I can relax a little bit. So they had That's that. That's really cool, yeah. Yeah, and um, and we spent a lot of time, you know, because the project was so personal to me, I think that once I was able to say, okay, these are these are yours now. These characters are yours now. So we, we were able to sort of call from their personal experiences and their, you know, relationship histories and their experience with loss and anything otherworldly to, to sort of, to frame out something elevated off the page. Um, and, and they did a really wonderful job with that, finding kind of unique little elements that belong just to this couple. And I was very grateful to them for being able to take care of those characters when I could no longer, <laughs> you know, like do more. Yeah, I'm really curious more about your, uh, also about the relate the director, so the writer-director and an actor relationship between you and Sienna Miller, because this is a part at the at the heart of the story that's close to an experience you actually had and you kind of do this handoff and unlike you know so many projects it's a very personal experience how do you direct an actor 
talk to an actor at that level about something that's personal without giving too much, without yeah. filling them with too many things, allowing them to take it their own direction. Um, like, how would you advise young directors to do that, especially when, you know, you're dealing with a star? Like, yeah, um, I will say, you know, like of everything I've ever done, because this was like vaguely based on me, I had the hardest time being like objective. Um, when it yeah. came to things like wardrobe or... Um, just certain personal things that it was just very hard to get my head like straight into a clean directorial, like, you know, uh, clear frame of mind. Um, like, because you thought, wait, I wouldn't have worn that or something like that. Or like, how, how did that manifest? <laughs> well, like in some ways, I just think like we're the hard, it's hardest for us to see ourselves. Right. So, yeah. so then like in, in some way on the page, Adrian took on her own life. And when Sienna came, she sort of took on her own life. And then there is like a little bit of a negotiation where you're like, um, it's no longer, it's no, it's certainly not me anymore. So, so let's make sure we know what it is. And it's not just rushing into, um, a, you know, a Sienna stylized fashion version of, of whatever this character would be like, let's make sure we're building something authentic. And um, I think the other thing is probably around Sienna, a lot of people want to like, She's so beautiful. She's so stylish. She's such like, um, I think it's easy for people to sort of elevate her and pedestalize her in a way or put her on a pedestal because I don't know if pedestalize is a word um, to, to, to sort of put her up above every, everybody, right? Even in, in terms of shooting or editing or whatever, how you're approaching her. And I very much was trying to say to everybody, like we need to humanize her. She is like, like if she was Benicio del Toro, we would not be worried about her cheekbones. Like, Let's shoot her like a person and not like a woman. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, I, no, I, I absolutely. I can only like. How do you make someone like that and get away from the uh, the age old historical like in cinema like glamour photography yes. essentially, especially somebody who's so obviously given to it, right? Who, yeah. who like yeah. pops anyway? How do you make them a human being and and not also do, go too far in the other direction? I, I can only imagine what that balancing act is like. Yeah, and she was totally game for it. It was really about everybody around her. It was about making sure that the crew understood our marching orders that. This was a human story that we were shooting a, a, a normal person and that we were not to be like, you know, falling in love in every frame or like selling perfume or that it wasn't just about beauty. I mean, she has that in spades. Like there's no, you know, um, she didn't need our help. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. No. I, and that's the thing is like, do you have to go hard in the other direction to de-emphasize that that's there? I mean, like, again, you say it like it's the thing of the male, like with, with Diego Luna, I imagine you're not, no one's worried about like how uh, glamorous he appears or making him more glamorous on camera, right? That's a, yeah, that's a gender thing. Yeah. And he's certainly like about the reality of it, you know, like what boots he wears is important, like what boots this guy would wear. It wasn't like, oh, right. I get some fancy boots because they look really cool, you know? So it was really right. trying to keep everything from a character perspective. I mean, here's the only thing I'll say is as a writer director, if you're really being true to the material and the character, then it kind of takes you out of the equation. And then it's not about like the ego or like knowing what's right. It's you're just working in service of the character and the story. And so everything should be coming back to that. Um, but certainly, you know, it's 
I was just joking. It's like, it's an occupational hazard to be intimidated by beautiful, intelligent, talented people. And I have to work on that because it is, you know, it's like you sit with these like amazing people and you just have to be like, okay, well, we're all on a team and we're all doing this thing together, you know? On that note, because we're talking about the gender part of it, I want to come back to this you mentioned briefly before we wrap. You talked about Me Too and how it kind of opened things up a little bit for you and you didn't see a path. So, you know, and you you also mentioned eloquently in 2000, you were up at the Treasure Mountain Inn and it took you 20 years to get down to Sundance. So now, you, you know, the movie was at Sundance, wide release. It's a big movie. And you directed, you wrote it. You've been directing TV. How much has have things changed in, for you in your career in the last however many years? And how much further do you think they have to go? Um, so, yeah. So things, first of all, have changed very dramatically for me. I mean, I'm able to provide for my family. I'm able to provide health care for my kids, right, when I wasn't before. It is, it is literally night and day how it's changed for me. Um, and it is a testament to how hard so many different people have worked to make that happen. Like that didn't happen on accident. That happened by force of will. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful to anybody who had anything to do with it. Um, I do think we still have, an, have a very, very long way to go. Women are not directing studio features at the rate they should be at all. I mean, the numbers are abysmal. Um, pilots, commercials. So, you know, where women have really been allowed into the independent film space and the uh, the episodic directing space, those are really entry points to the yes. work that is the most uh, the most well paid, the most well regarded, the most attended. So, we have to get you know women and people of color uh, in leadership roles that are even more significant than what we've given them so far. It just it you know it has to be there has to be parity. Um, and I look, I'm, I'm a big part of pushing for that. I'm working with the DGA on a lot of things that they're doing to try to help create that sort of change. Um, all the diversity committees at the DGA are working together in this really intersectional and beautiful way that I'm so proud of. And I think a lot of people are having the difficult conversations that, that we weren't able to have previously. So I find that really exciting. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that what's so exciting about it really Part of it is like the proof is in the pudding for those of us who are film goers or, or learning about filmmaking in that this movie is a personal story and you have been you have a platform where you can tell your story. And it's different than the stories that we would hear from, you know, the same uh, demographic that's been making the majority of movies for the last hundred years. And yeah. It's a different version of a story. And I think that the more we see these, the more people will appreciate that that it's nice to get a different kind of storytelling. <laughs> it's yeah. nice to get a different perspective and it enriches what what are the quality of the of the content. And I think that that's like that's got to be uh, that's got to be what what's motivating. But it's, it, it is great that that things turned around uh, as quickly as they did. And it's just it's great to hear from a filmmaker whose career has straddled that shift mm. and, and they can say from experience, it was this way and now it is this way. And it's a big change. Yeah. Yeah. Bring everybody up with me. I'm like ready for it. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, very thank excited. You. The movie is available and I hope people see it and, uh, I'm curious to know what people think. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, thanks to Tara for coming on. One other thing I just loved about what she said and that I want to highlight is that she explained that she brings that one page where she just writes down the kernel, the nugget, the three sentences or so of what the project is down. She brings that to people to see if it resonates. And she uses that as the touchstone she returns to throughout the process. And I think that's such great advice. Um, I can't see how you could go wrong doing that. And I would recommend people do it. And I'm curious to know if something like that works for all of you. Of course, you can reach us with any questions at ask at nofilmschool.com if you want your question featured on our weekly podcast. Please be sure to check out all of our content over at nofilmschool.com. Like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, comment, rate, like, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends on social media and all that good stuff. Thanks so much for listening as always and let us know what you think and how we're doing. <laughs>